We really hope you enjoyed today, and I think you're going to enjoy this last session. Uh, I've been looking forward to it since we, we started planning this. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dave Olson. He's going to ask you, are you worthy? All right. So uh, it's the end of the day. Uh, my brain's a little, a little stretched, a lot of input, a lot of stuff. So if you're feeling a little antsy, because frankly, taking notes... I don't, know, I don't know if I'm going to say anything that's really worth taking notes. Uh, so if you want, I'm just putting this out there. If you want to come sit down here or you want to pull your chair over, you know, I'm an old hippie, right? So I was on dead tour and, you know, it's all right. You can come and sit down if you want. No big whoop, by the way. I'll give you a moment to do that. My ulterior motive for asking you to do that is um, I didn't bring any, uh, any, uh, anything to put on the projector. But I have lots of little uh, odds and ends here. So you'll get a better view if you come sit up front. That's the way I like it. Special shout out to the ladies right back there. Although uh, I almost said I didn't make any slides, but I did make two slides here because, you know, people are always telling me that, Dave, we really like your presentations, but damn it, would you give us a bulleted list? So... As someone who's put on a lot of these conferences and camps, I want to uh, echo what John said um, about big ups to the organizers. This is a totally fancy place. I feel a little intimidated kind of coming in here, like the security is going to be shaking me down any minute. But there was no problems out back when we had our safety meeting. So if anyone was wondering, that's it, apparently what they say about Whistler is true. So today we learned about, a lot about how to deliver uh, content. Um, what I'm going to talk about is, I don't know, figuring out what that content is. And I also want to, in doing so, I want to kind of, sometimes we think about blogging as both um, the delivery method and the content. I'm making a blog post. I'm blogging. How do, we, how do we arrange these words? But really, blogging and blogs is a delivery method because WordPress isn't just a blog, as we've learned from the ambassador from Norway. Um, <laughs> that this is just another tool in a long lineage of methods for publish, publishing expression. And I'm going to start my story um, on what was in a really eventful day for me. I was living on the island of Guam. You ever seen Guam? You know anything about it? Nobody does. So I brought a picture. There's a picture, which no, serves no purpose. Except it's a really cool map, though, I think. But this is a little island that's 30 miles by 11 miles. And I worked uh, at a private beach club, which uh, if I would have been 19 and single, I might have stayed at my entire life. But you can see it was a really weird job. Here I am. You can pick me out because um, I'm the guy that's white that's not wearing a T-shirt. And uh, I worked at this uh, beach job. And uh, every day I'd go there and all the Japanese tourists would come to this island and I'd help them have a really good time. All right, we're going to go horseback riding, then we're going to play volleyball on the beach. Awesome. But it was all in Japanese. Like, Minasa! Kuchinawa! Um, and then a significant event happened and, uh, um, that really changed things a lot for me. And that was Jerry Garcia dying. I know you're all shedding a single tear. For those of you under 30, Jerry Garcia played in a rock and roll band <laughs> called The Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead were popular in the 60s. <laughs> and 
and he was famous enough that they made an ice cream about him. And uh, um, I quit my job that day um, because I wanted to, uh, I figured I'd go to San Francisco for like the funeral because that's a big deadhead and everyone would be partying and celebrating. But I didn't make it because it's really expensive to get off the islands. That's one thing if you haven't been to the islands, you should know. It's easy to get there but really hard to get off the islands. So I went to an impromptu candlelight vigil. And I have proof of that because here's the Pacific Daily News from Guam. And it says in here, let's see, blah, 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 bunch of crap. Where's the good part? Uh, David Olson, 25, has traveled through Japan, Europe, Mexico, and all over the United States. And each stop, there have been grateful dead fans there to greet him. Hallelujah. There's a quote from me. There is no one else that brings people together like that, said Olson, who took the day off from work, day off, yeah, when he heard the news of Garcia's death. He had a message for the people who ridicule reactions to Garcia's death. I think the people are jealous, he said, he being me. They managed to spell my last name twice in the same article, too, by the way. They see people living their dreams and being free. They just want to be free themselves. It's moving, isn't it? So I was talking to these guys from the newspaper, and uh, I was saying, well, you know, I really want to go out to the funeral, and there's going to be this big celebration, but I don't know what's going on. And they knew all the answers to what was going on. And I said, wow, how do you know all this? And they said, we work for the newspaper. We have the internet. The internet? Tell me. Tell me of this internet thing you speak of. What is this? And they said something about computers and phone lines. And they're explaining it. I didn't really get it. And then I was like, so I can put words and pictures up on this thing. And then people can go with their computers. And they can look at it anytime, anywhere for Free or cheap? Yep. And I was like, wow, I've got to get some of this. Because uh, as you're going to learn over the next little bit of time, is I had a little interest in all this personal publishing stuff. This map's just in here. I don't know why. It's a whole map of Oceania. So if anyone has any questions about Micronesian geography afterwards. Which brings me to the first uh, slide. Actually, I'm going to have to put this down for a second. Usually, a presentation has to have at least one bullet of the list and at least one buzzword. So I thought I'd get these both out of the way with my one, one of my two slides here. The other one I put a chart on, but that's just a little preview. And there in Guam, when I learned about, like that, I'll read these one by one. Don't worry, you don't have to strain your eyes in the back. Uh, um, and learn about the internet, I realized that this was the missing piece of the whole personal publishing, self-publishing uh, tensions or conundrums. I've called them here holistic. That's kind of a half-buzzword point. Publishing paradigms. Oh, there's the buzzword. There's your buzzword. Or tensions for the academics there. You know, tensions or syndromes, perhaps. So the first puzzle is distribution. That's the first one of the puzzles that had to be figured out for. And when I talk about publishing in these conundrums, this is artists making stuff, getting it over here to someone who's interested enough to read this. There's a bunch of little steps and things that have to happen along the way. The next one is there has to be, it has to take some form. There has to be some artifact or some thing that people hold or look at and can consume the piece of personal publishing in. Then there's the regulatory stuff, which I'm going to get into quite a bit here in just a little bit. And this is talking about both terms of intellectual property law and censorship and a few other things like that. Um, and then there needs to be quality discourse. There needs to be a certain high level of 
writing. It has to be something that uh, says something uh, important and says it in an artistic way. Um, maybe artistic's not the best word there, it's a little bit subjective, but it has to put it in a clear and, and uh, proper manner. And then, finally, this last ingredient is there needs to be something to express, which seems like, well, duh. But honestly, it's, uh, some, sometimes it's the last one to uh, come into the mix. There you go. See, um, I was smart enough to take my notebook, turn it sideways so I can stand up there. Look at that. Yeah, look at that. PowerPoint, schmowerpoint, eh? Look at that. So let, let's unpack, as conference facilitators like to say, let's unpack those topics. I started thinking first about uh, writing and personal expression and self-expression were some of the earliest forms that we have. And, uh, you know, I went to college and stuff, right? You know, I'd study some art stuff. I don't have a black turtleneck or anything, right? But, like, I read the Greeks. And, uh, and here we have some of the earliest pieces of literature that exists. And really, if you read this stuff, here's uh, the Oresteia by Aeschylus. One of the oldest tomes. This in the Odyssey or kind of like the vintage things. You ever tried to read the Odyssey? Figure out. You know, where they go, go from cavemen, we think of grunts and groans, but somehow the earliest written things that we have available to us are some of the most dense, intense uh, works that have ever been produced ever, and they're some of the earliest things. And indeed, our entire legal system and our whole, dare I say, moral structure of modern society of what's right and what's wrong really hasn't changed too much from the Greeks. And because I hauled all these books, if any of you follow me along on Twitter, um, through, I think they're up to eight different buses my suitcase of books have been on. I figure since I hauled them, I get to read a little bit from each one, right? It's all right with everyone? All right, so here's Agamemnon, the king. Um, do you remember that Brad Pitt movie that was all that ancient Greek stuff? Apparently, the ancient Greeks didn't make their stories compelling enough, so Hollywood had to completely change it. So if you've seen that, please forget all about it. Here is King Agamemnon returning from battle. For, th uh, for that we must thank the gods with a sacrifice. Our sons will long remember. For their mad outrage of a queen, we raped their city. We were right. This is, this is thousands of years ago. So angry. The beast of Argos, foals of the wild mare. Thousands massed in armor rose on the night. The Pleiades went down and crashing through their walls. Our bloody lion lapped its fill, gorging on the blood of kings. Our thanks to the gods, long drawn out, but it is just the prelude. Wow. Well, they certainly uh, had a flair for the dramatic, those ancient Greeks. And they, they wrote all these works that explained what we really see as uh, the definitions and the underpinnings of our mo modern court system. This story goes on, and kings die, and it's all this Shakespearean-like drama that we see repeated throughout um, history. Um, in other cultures, including uh, from the Chinese. Now, right around the same time, the Chinese were starting some written works. And, uh, but this work here I brought by, uh, it's, it's, this is the art of writing by Li Ju. And here we are in 200 AD. And the Greeks had figured out all this moral underpinnings and all these grand things, what's right and what's wrong. Is it all right to kill people for revenge? Is revenge proper? Is that allowed? They've killed one of your families, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or should you forgive people? Meanwhile, the Chinese were saying, how can we make the writing really pretty? 
Here's, uh, there's like 69, 70 some odd little stanzas about, about these different parts of writing. Hold on, I'm going to have a sip of water so I can do this one proper. Because, you know, if you're going to take the time to write about all this killing of the kings and queens and lapping on the blood of kings like a gorged lion, you should have some structure and some technique, like revision. A sentence may contradict what comes before, trespass on what follows. Sometimes the idea is good, but words fail, and fine words may make no sense. In such cases, it is wise to set the two apart, since they harm each other when put together. It is delicate to judge which idea or words work better. A difference finer than wheat ears hairs. Weigh each word on a scale. Use a measuring cord to make your cuts. Now anyone who's a de designer, the designer's mantra is all about if take out everything that doesn't absolutely need to be there. That's exactly what they're saying there. That's 200 AD. Have we really moved on too much from that? Has the editorial process changed dramatically? Not all that much. So then, ooh, this is the part where I am. I use my electronic device. <coughs> I'm going to move forward to the next big technology, uh, technological innovation in publishing. Rotate. This isn't it. I'm talking about the Gutenberg price. Um, so, from the time of these books, things written down on on various rags, animal skins, homemade papers, and whatnot, um, things progressed. Uh, where books were hand-copied, right? You had to sit down, you'd assemble, and people made it their life's work. Let's learn about these monks. From Richard de Bury, the Bishop of Durham, in 1345, he talked about the joy that these monks felt. Shall I? The venerable devotion of the religious orders is wont to be solicitous in the care of books and, and to delight in their society, as if they were the only riches for some used to write them with their own hands between the hours of prayer and gave to the making of books such intervals as they could secure and at times appointed for the recreation of the body by whose labors they are resplendent today in the monasteries, these sacred treasuries full of cherubic letters. Oh, such tender sentiments. So these monks were transcribing them, these books. Who were they transcribing them for? Other monks. They were the only ones who could read, right? So it's like it didn't do anyone any good. So these monks, they had like their little private club where they would spend spend months, years, writing one book. But of course, they were really transcribing one book over and over again. Guess which one? Anyone? <laughs> and, uh, and of course, everyone knows that, you know, I could do that a little bit better. Who wrote this draft of this? I'm copying my own copy. I'm going to, yeah, there's a little stylistic flourish there. Change a little meaning here. And there's a lot of emphasis put on the physical artifact of the book. Um, the words weren't, were complementary to the pictures, as we, that quote with the cherubic, cherubic pages, the pages were really decorated. And then the Gutenberg press came. And of course, as you might expect, there was some resistance. There were some people who said, oh, this new technology, you can't just let anyone publish anything. What would happen? Good Lord. And then there was a revulsion by the, uh, by the clergy and the church saying, you know, who would ever what literate, decent person would ever even put their hands on a printed book? What is the value of these printed books? We have handwritten books made with love. Why would anyone write it? You know, it was an embarrassment to have a printed book. They were for the common people. Of course, there wasn't too many people that could read, but once you start making books, people go, 
hey, I have access to books. I should learn how to read, right? Why not? I have access to the information. Uh, so there was a, began, began a bit of tension between the polite society and the proper society, the religious society, and people who wanted to just print anything that they wanted. Yeah, you could almost call it a revolution. And then the next revolution came, which was the Industrial Revolution. And what happened is all these old Gutenberg presses, which didn't really change for the first 150, 200 years, these old wooden presses, they were all decommissioned because there's new, awesome iron steam presses. We can have newspapers now. Ah, oh, thank God for newspapers, eh? Came around, around this time. And what happened is all these old Gutenberg presses, they were claimed by the radicals, the hippies of their day. And so begat the underground press. And it was only a few short years before the underground press, especially in England at this time, um, began to have bigger circulation than the mainstream press. So the government stepped in and said, oh, you know, you're going to have to register those presses. Oh. So that's why they loved the wooden presses, because you could take them apart, disassemble, disassemble, unassemble them, and take them and move them to another clandestine location and print out your things. And this led us into the American Revolution, where this was a big hang-up with those, uh, you know, you know, I, sometimes I have a hard time with early American history because there's all these, like, the Framers and the Thomas Paines and all that. But then you think of all the Puritans, and I got some issues with the Puritans, right? Just Puritanism in general. But I'm going to just ignore them and go right to Thomas Paine and the people like them. And they started printing broadsides uh, in these basically manifestos. You know, when we think of manifesto, we think now of the, the, the Unabomber. I almost said Unabonger, but that's another guy. Um, <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> manifesto is taken on this, like, you know, underground kind of meaning. But think about the, the Declaration of Independence, manifesto, and all these early documents. Um, but they were able to disseminate that information because they had these clandestine, unregistered, illegal presses. And they made tremendous sacrifices to keep the word out and keep spreading the word. And so when they finally sat down and wrote the Constitution, they said, damn it, freedom of speech, freedom of all that press stuff. But they didn't really know what the press was. What is the press? Who is the press? Who, you know, I know there's an agency, and I know there's people who have, like, press cards and credentials. I know there's these Associated Press and the UPI, and there's people, and they have this whole little club, and they do this thing. And But did the constitutional framers see it that way? And I know we're here in Canada and all that, right? But it just ties in better to the whole story arc if we just hum along and <laughs> with the American thing. Because <laughs> we know what, the Canadian one, it wasn't in dramatic moments. It was like a long, drawn-out process of careful deliberation and cautious optimism, and eventually we reached a good compromise. <laughs> so, so the constitutional framers said, oh, we've got to have freedom of expression, freedom of press, and all this stuff, right? But then when it actually came down to allowing that, whoa, ho, ho, hold on. That there is indecent. We didn't say indecent expression was allowed. And in this book right here, this is, uh, played, played a huge role in opening up what we in modern liberal Western civilizations are allowed to read. Oh, let me get that. That's, that's old. That's older than some of the kids in here, I think, that article there. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and the U.S. took on a, a really awkward stance about um, copyright in the early days of the uh, federation, country, whatever, right? Um, for the first 100, and, 100 years and change, the U.S. Uh, deliberately did not respect foreign copyrights. Unless a physical artifact was printed and bound in America, it was considered 
basically public domain, piratable materials. And so you had this whole gray market of booklegging, they called it, cute, eh? They even had little cute plays on words back in the day. That's historical, that term, booklegging. And, uh, um, and so what happened is you'd have uh, uh, all these illegal copies of, of books coming in and out. And in, meanwhile, in England, they were starting to adopt these uh, early intellectual property laws uh, in which they were, uh, beforehand, uh, the, the rights to produce a book were assumed to be hereditary and passed down. And so the works of Shakespeare, for example, for hundreds of years, they're only printed and produced by this one operation. People started to say in this age of enlightenment, let us democratize this information and spread it around. In order to do that, we have to loosen up these restrictions. And so they started to put limits on these rights. But then they, it was sort of forced into question a lot of these things like how long and uh, what about all this old stuff and all this grandfather stuff and do the people really deserve it? And it really turned into a little bit of a class struggle. Should people be allowed access to this information? Do they know what to do with this information? And all kind of came to the head with this book uh, by James Joyce. Has anyone ever read Ulysses? It's amazing that this caused such a commotion because it is a dense motherfucking project to get through this book, right? Um, and I'll talk about it from a literary standpoint here briefly, but first, um, uh, uh, it took about 20 years from when James Joyce first published this to when it was first available uh, legally in the United States. And they would not allow it in the United States because it was indecent. He talked about terrible things. He was disrespectful to the royalty. There was allusions to masturbation in it. <laughs> there were sexual thoughts and content. But you gotta be a pretty good reader to actually find that, to get through the first couple <laughs> pages to even get to that. So anyone who was complaining about it, you almost gotta tip your hat a little bit because they invested some time in their argument, but still their argument was bullshit. And the United States government used the Customs Service and the Postal Service to stop these works from coming. And they were destroyed at the docks every time they tried to come in. Then a nice lady from Shakespeare and Company, book company, uh, uh, took the case to court saying, I want to import this book legally. Because by then, the book uh, had reached this, you know what happens when they, they make something illegal, right? People find a way to get it. Can you think of any examples of that today? <laughs> so Ulysses was all over the motherfucking bit torrent, right? And uh, people were, were scavenging in all these illegal copies of it and spreading around. James Joyce was getting a little ticked because he's unhealthy. He's living in Switzerland. He just wants a little bit of love from his book. The people, the literary establishment, want it. So finally, it came down to a court case. Can I read you a bit of that? This, this edition that I have here, which I hauled on eight buses, um, includes a preface where it ha actually has the uh, U.S. Uh, court decision. It still stands to this day and is still often referenced in cases such as this. I uh, used some of the Fairmont paper here as bookmarks. I want to acknowledge the good people at the hotel. <clears throat> Another sip of water. Pardon me. You know, it's, it's a legal proceeding. I should take the time to have a sip of water. <clears throat> All right. I have read Ulysses once in its entirety. Good work, Judge. And I have read these, those passages of which the government particularly complained several times. Sounds scandalous, doesn't it? In fact, for many weeks, my spare time has been devoted to the consideration of the decision which my duty would require me to make in this matter. Ulysses is not an easy book to read or to understand. 
70 degrees. <laughs> but, uh, but there has been much written about it, and in order to properly to approach the consideration of it, it is advisable to read a number of other books which uh, have now become its satellites. The study of Ulysses is therefore a heavy task. Heavy. The reputation of Ulysses in the literary world, however, warranted my taking such time as was necessary to enable me to satisfy myself as to the intent with which the book was written. Intent, very important word in there. For, of course, in any case where a book is claimed to be obscene, it must first be determined whether the intent with which it was written was what is called, according to the usual phrase, pornographic. <laughs> that is, written for the purpose of exploiting obscenity. If the conclusion is that the book is pornographic, that is the end of the inquiry, inquiry, and the forfeiture must follow. Here's the best part. But in Ulysses, in spite of its unusual frankness, I do not detect anywhere the leer of a sensualist. That's a good word, eh? Sensualist? I hold, therefore, that it is not pornographic. And with that... This book uh, opened up the floodgates um, to both importing of this book. By then, uh, James Joyce was almost a ruined man and quite downtrodden and died shortly thereafter, blah, blah, blah. Happens to the best of them. But uh, this stands up as a court case. It says literary works have merit. Now, this also meant that by importing it, by it being legally admissible, it could be produced in the United States, which meant it could be copyrighted, copyrighted, copyrighted within the United States, but there was this whole other gray market of all these other books and all these other copies. So this, this book really started a lot of the conundrum about the modern intellectual property law, um, grandfathering and the international laws, and really sort of forced the United States to kind of come into the modern time. Now, there's one other book I was going to show you. I got a tiny bit out of sequence here. Um, it's just so exciting. It's hard to keep everything all organized in that suitcase. Um, here's another one that I brought to kind of show... Um, uh, the Marriage of Form and Function, the late 1800s. Um, book binding and book publishing had kind of m met that point where it could be done in a mass-produced manner, but they were still doing it old school, and the pictures were still really important. So I brought as an example of that, uh, this is Don Quixote. This is one of, um, this is considered really the first really modern novel, and this edition here is from 1891, and it's a four-part series, but it's really cool inside. Hold on, I'll show you. The pages are all hand-cut. Can you see from the side there? Right? So each page was lovingly hand-cut. This is as old a monk style as, as I personally uh, have come across. And I, considering the book's, uh, well, quite old, I should probably be a little bit more gentle. Tyler, give me a hand. Hold up here. Look at the visual aids here that Tyler's going to show you. It has these little nice tissue papers covering these nice etchings within the thing. And it goes throughout the story, which all the text is all hand-laid. You can actually, there's tactility to it. You can hold, rub your hand against the print of it. Yeah. And it, and it has texture. And it's got these beautiful illustrations in it. And this was kind of the marriage, uh, the high point, what I think is the, uh, of the form and the function. You have this classic piece of literature presented in this beautiful volume that was mm, production made, but still with an artistic flair and a sense of purpose to the book, that the artifact was important which I'm going to get to that a little bit more. The other thing that was important about Ulysses, I was going to mention from a literary standpoint, is this really uh, opened up stream of consciousness as a writing style. Stream of consciousness and first-person narrative seems 
pretty natural to us. Live blogging, what's that? Stream of consciousness, yes? Anyone, anyone think so? Yeah, okay. Um, first person using uh, all the old classics, you notice that it's all written in the third person. It really wasn't until the Confessions of St. Augustine and Jean-Jacques uh, Rousseau and some of these guys that they're really talking the first person, like this is me, not me being someone else, but this is me, damn it. This is me telling everything that's inside of me as myself rather than a character. Um, James Joyce took this a step further and he put himself into character but uh, included everything about the day. Usually, we like to include the interesting bits of our lives in our anecdotes, don't we? The high points, the low points. He put in uh, all those points in between. The ones that usually aren't very interesting, yeah, they're all in here. Um, this book, you see this, that's one day in Dublin. So. The funny thing is one day takes you about three months to read, but all right. So censorship. Censorship is over in America and print is free unless those words, uh, how am I doing for time? Okay. How much time do I have? <laughs> yeah. Um, what's that? About seven minutes? How about 20? Okay. Um, but they're turned into a different kind of uh, censorship, uh, economic censorship. You heard about the McCarthy Times back there in the 50s in America, where it just became un-American to do things that were un-American. And if you were un-American, well, you were just going to be ostracized and not allowed to be American anymore because you've been branded with the un-Americanness. Um, and here's a little something that I came across. Uh, it's, it's, it's Vladimir Lenin's uh, remarks about war and peace, the uh, book there by uh, Leo Tolstoy. And this struck me when I first pulled it off the shelf. It's like, wow, that's remarkable that literature can be so powerful that it causes uh, massive political figures who had huge impact on the world to feel like they have to do a response to address the topics raised in... I mean, can you imagine... Uh, well, you, actually, I guess you I suppose you could imagine uh, Barack writing down a little essay about something. Stephen Harper, not so much. Stefan Dion, yeah, he'd write something down, but no one would really understand what he was saying, you know? <laughs> But then the other thing, and, and War and Peace is, is, a, is a fantastic piece of literature that um, I always remember uh, the, uh, Condoleezza Rice, uh, they would always say in her, her little sound bites that, oh yeah, she's read uh, War and Peace in original Russian. And I'm like, well, she clearly missed the point of it, so maybe she should go back and read it in English. But, um, but the remarkable thing about this book was uh, where it was published. It was published in, remember when we used to call Beijing Peking, 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 China. They printed these little uh, bootleg copies of, uh, well, uh, clandestine copies of Lenin's remarks in China, in English, just to ship there, just to get to America for propaganda purposes. And while, uh, don't worry, I, no, call me. Just, just a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I think it's important that things like this are allowed to circulate freely um, and live in libraries. Um, so, uh, I really learned the importance of that. Uh, I did some time in Utah and uh, in high school, and uh, I went to the same high school for like a year and a half where the Osmonds had gone, right? And uh, it, was, it was pretty weird because I, I, I grew up in Surrey, and, and so it was like really different, right? And, uh, and I knew there was something really important about literature when I, for, uh, in 11th grade, we were like, okay, in English class, in honors English, you can pick any book you want to read. So I brought in Catcher in the Rye. And it was like, oh, my God. And I had to get a note from my mom, eh, to say that I could write, read Catch in the Rye. I was like, wow, if literature has the, has the power to freak people out like this. Then when we had to do our little book report, the teacher went up beforehand and said, now, Dave's read a really controversial book. And then and, and, and it turns out the teacher had no idea what it was about. And I said, well, it was this guy who runs away from school, and he kind of sorts his shit out while he's staying at cheap hotels. 
and, it's, and, 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 and she didn't believe me, right? She thought I was like lying about the book. But anyway, continuing on from James Joyce, uh, my next stop in the literary tradition of that I'm going to point out is Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Anyone read this one? Okay. This one, uh, this one's a kind of a neat addition, and I just picked this up. Um, the story about uh, Kerouac written, writing On the Road was that he wrote it in one big long scroll, right? He was high on Benzedrine the whole time, but that's, you know, he tells about that and he writes about it, and I'm right now to get Benzedrine, and I'm right back and I'm here typing. But you don't really understand the majesty of his typing work until you see uh, it all in one block. May I show you? So I'm, I'm, I'll spare you from reading a, a, a paragraph because like, it takes like all day, right? Um, <laughs> but um, this was uh, a really critical period because all of a sudden, uh, literature and uh, you know, there was this highbrow, high-mindedness about it. You know, it was Dickens and Chaucer, and and there had been like this modernist movement with uh, Joyce and Ezra Pound and and uh, D. H. Lawrence and all these writers. But really, this was. T took it and spun it all out of control, and it was all of a sudden, wow, anyone who has a story can tell should be telling it. Uh, so I think this was a critical stop along and a huge inspiration on me. Now, I'm going to have to skip some of this stuff because, um, because of the time, but I'm going to give you a quick choice. One, I can um, give you a list of how to make awesome stuff, or I can show you um, awesome stuff I have made that has influenced my social media production thing. Preferences? Okay. So, there I was, Guam. I had realized that the, where's my, where's my slide? <clears throat> okay. Uh, uh, the form that had been per perfected, case in point, that lovely Don Quixote, that's an awesome form of a thing, right? And then there's the regulatory shit had been sorted out by James Joyce there, censorship, copyright, we kind of had a handle on that. Um, quality discourse, the Greeks, uh, we've never really been uh, uh, able to improve on them as far as I'm concerned. Um, and this internet stuff, ooh, this could solve that distribution puzzle. And it did sort-ish right there in the 90s, right? Sort-ish. You guys were there in the 90s using the internet. Just wasn't as neat as it is now. Um, but the last thing I had, the something to express, I had some of that. Let's explore some of those things. Um, here is the oldest thing in my social media artifact. This is from March 10th, 1979. This is the Pig Express. Um, for those of you who don't recognize these kind of purple fuzzy letters, this was called a Ditto machine. And you'd put this liquid stuff that kind of smelled uh, like paint thinner in this little container and it had this reel that'd go around. And I made my little newsletters. This one here, um, I'm talking about the Canucks, the prospect that they might build a 62,000 seat stadium. They had originally planned it to do that in Surrey, you know, BC Place. Imagine that, eh? More truck and tractor poles, I think, if it was in Surrey. Uh, the P&E coming up, but uh, in this case, Jake Milford was getting ready to fly to Sweden and go recruit Swedish hockey players. Can you imagine? Swedish hockey players on our Canucks? But this was my first uh, little thing. I had a subscriber base of 35, which is about what I have now. Um, and while this, I had something to say, and I was able to produce the content. Still, the distribution was a drag, right? You know, I had to physically create the artifact and then spread it around. So after about three, four issues, yeah, it tailed off, because I really wanted to work in color. 
Here's a little something for the ambassador back there. As soon as I, as soon as I saw you up there, I was like, oh, have I got a surprise for you. Um, in fourth, fourth grade or so, like I really like book reports were my favorite part, you know, having to produce a report. But I look at this and it's like, damn, this is like, it's like a little web page. It's like a little slideshow presentation, except instead of HTML markup, I was using scissors and glue. <laughs> so it's the same way I'd make a blog post now. If I had to do a little something about Norway, I'd put in some pictures and a little bit of text there. But alas, this is really hard to mass produce because like each one of them, like I had to cut out the magazine for the pictures. So <laughs> this is it, right? Unless I, I didn't think it would likely get picked up by like, you know, National Geographic or something. So it's sort of like an end life of this project. Last part. Do you want me to recap the last minute and a half? <laughs> it was really good. Um, okay, so then I started saying, uh, writing a book report on Norway isn't really my life's calling, but punk rock is. And the 80s, to me, were a golden period of self-publishing and grassroots publishing uh, because of the humble Xerox machine or the photocopier uh, made by whatever brand that you have. And my parents were in real estate, and they have Xerox copiers there at the real estate offices. Um, it turns out they're not free. Um, <laughs> But uh, these were lovingly produced at various uh, real estate offices in, in uh, Surrey. And uh, that's, uh, that's the Ramones there. And, uh, and in here, it's starting to see like, okay, there's a kind of closing the loop a little bit, you know? You can send, uh, here, well, that's about it. I hope you enjoyed it. Please send any comments uh, or complaints about this zine with an apostrophe. Um, once again, all contributions will be used. I'm easy. And you'll get a free zine as well. Yeah. But the reason I was doing this is because I realized that uh, you can be an expert as long as you uh, write something that, that, that kind of backs you up, right? And I realized if you're an expert um, and a media outlet, then you can get free shit. So this is how I got free records. This ad right here, paid for, box of records, done and done. And, uh, but it was still a little bit of a tricky uh, distribution scheme because at the, you know, every once in a while, someone would send some stamps and two bucks and request a copy, and I'd have to put, put it in an envelope and put stamps on it. But it was a great way to start collecting and exchanging. And most of the zine readers were other zine writers. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> blog reader, blog writer? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I love retweets so much. You know, someone puts out a message, and then everyone else puts out the exact same message. So I got 12 copies of the same thing, all people reading the same thing. So. Um, this also gave me an opportunity to collaborate um, and give a little shout out to Bev Davies, who I'll be talking to at Northern Voice. Um, Bev Davies was uh, a huge influence on my uh, young life as a social media maker, although we didn't call it that, um, because she would go uh, take pictures of the punk rock shows and she would let fanzines use them. Wow. So at Northern Voice, I'm going to ask her all the reasons about that, but for me, it was a really huge deal because you could start to see how people would exchange things and then bands would take those and build up their reputations and then you start going and start making friends. You start meeting people through your fanzine and before you know it, you've built up a culture. Okay, while I was digging through, I'm gonna show you that it wasn't just me doing all this crazy stuff. This here is uh, the DOA and Friends uh, coloring book. Anyone know the punk band DOA in Vancouver? All right, um, th they made a coloring book. And uh, I, I should be really gentle with that. But uh, here, hold that up for me, John. And you can show a couple of the pages. Like, you can take it out and show a couple of pages. I just don't want to, like, uh, mess it up. But isn't that cute? Like, a punk rock band would say, oh, we'll make a little coloring book. We'll staple it together, and we'll call it a publication. 
So then I started traveling a little bit farther afield um, and would always put my notebook in here. Um, I went to uh, Europe with a one-way ticket and $100 Canadian tucked in my shoe and a backpack. I ended up traipsing around for about three months picking grapes and, and stuff like that. But doing it, um, instead of taking a camera, because I didn't have one, um, and I thought, you know, cameras, sometimes you can hide behind the camera and it's like you'll enjoy shit later if you take a picture of it now. And I wanted a little bit more immediacy and kind of feel like, you know, going to Europe, it wasn't that big of a deal anymore. It was still, there's still borders and it was before ATMs and different currencies. So it's a little bit of adventure, but I said, I'm going to go with no prior knowledge. I read a 1972 guidebook to hitchhiking through Europe just so I could, you know, not really have any real context. And I took a notebook and some paints. And so I made some little sketches along the way. There's the guy that picked me up and started smoking heroin off some aluminum foil and drove me into Germany. <laughs> he looked just like that, too. Oh, there's at the, uh, the guy smoking the huge joints at the Turkish Music Festival. Some people picked me up and took me, too. And, uh, and then I did quite a bit of writing uh, on that, too. And when I finally came across this notebook again not too long ago, I said, well, what do I do with this stuff? Guess what? Start a WordPress blog. I start ta transcribing all that stuff in there. And then I was uh, digging through here, and I, I was going to tell you the importance. And this was the tip that was going to go in the list about how to make cool stuff, which is always have a notebook with you. And notebooks are really handy for writing poetry, but also when you're hitchhiking, um, you can make your hitchhiking science. And I, and I thought I would take this as a, when I went to Europe as you know, Canadian, so people didn't mix me up with an American using some other hitchhiking school notebook. Um, <laughs> but these are kind of neat. Um, these are kind of cool little mementos of the trip, you know, all my little hitchhiking signs. Um, but this kind of stuff, um, it's part of your personal story and your personal stuff, and it goes in that pile of having something to talk about. And all of you have done some kind of trip or some kind of adventure that kind of took you, oh, this one's good, um, t taking you out of your comfort zone, and that's the kind of stuff you should write about. Yeah, oh, good times. Good times. <laughs> You'll probably notice that there's not too many signs after hauling, because once you get to Amsterdam, <laughs> it's, uh, it's really hard to leave. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I made some paintings there in Europe. Uh, you look at them later. Um, then I discovered computers. And I thought, well, I could take all these short stories and poetry I've been writing on all my trips, and I can put them on this thing. But the th problem is, is these really computers with this dot matrix printing is fucking ugly, man. I don't want this. I don't want to distribute this. I want a beautiful book, right? I want something that you can hold on and go, oh, it's lovely. Look at these lovely images. And I can feel the ink. Instead, it's like this. Uh, it looks like some tax form or something like that. It just wasn't a very fun way to distribute uh, my, my work. So it wasn't long after that that... Um, uh, I decided, uh, I learned about those color copiers that had just come out, like, you know, years ago. And I got a job at Kinko's. <clears throat> I'll let you think about that for a second. <laughs> and I did three months hard time at Kinko's just so I could use their color copier after hours because I thought I can make a nicer looking little book. So I decided to take the influence of uh, European post-impressionalist painting and Japanese haiku and sort of mash them together. Apparently there's not a big demand for this, but I thought they were really cute. Um, and I made... Uh, <clears throat> I made some wee little chat books, as they call them. And it's had, look at that, a color cover. Pretty nice, eh? And then I went black and white inside, you know, both for aesthetic and financial purposes. And... Uh, you know, because I'm really into, I kind of just jammed these in. It's not sewn together. The, the ones I sent around, you know, I, I got some uh, nice thread, and I sewed them up and hand-bound them. But holy shit, that was quite a project, right? You know, and I made, maybe made like 50 copies of them. And I, you know, I'm not stupid. I know 
40 of the people that I sent them to, they're like, great, Dave's got some stuff. Awesome. We'll totally read that later, right? <laughs> what does that mean? Right? So, undaunted, I carry on with my projects. And <laughs> but the, uh, um, in these projects, I've tried to uh, figure out how to take this mm, analog workmanship and this analog creative process and make that and couple it with the internet. And so I did all these internet businesses in the 90s, and I started with Notepad and Angly Bracket, HTML close Angly Bracket, and all this kind of stuff, but it's still a drag because you have all these websites. And my first web page I made was about the history of hemp in Japan, and I learned how to make a web page, but I didn't know how to make web pages where they connected them together. So like my first web page, it was like a zen cone, how long can a web page be, you know? <laughs> until you hit save, until you, oh, no, it could be as long as you want. You could be continually making a page. Turns out that's not the best way to, to make a page. Um, but then lo and behold, uh, the final little piece of the puzzle, uh, the findability, um, came about with, uh, with RSS. And so I met Dave Weiner at Gnomedex a couple years ago. And Dave Weiner, uh, he's like a curmudgeonly old uh, professor, you know, computer geek that invented RSS. So I'm like, wow, hey, Dave Weiner, nice to meet you. My name's Dave. Thanks for inv inventing RSS. Uh -huh. You know, most guys named Dave are pretty friendly, so I was a little like, wow, you know. It's true, isn't it? Most guys named Dave. You know many assholes named Dave? <laughs> Didn't think so. And I said, Dave, could I take your picture? Put on the flicker? I wish digital cameras had never been invented. Ah, grumble, grumble. Ah, <laughs> oh, what a sweetheart. Well, thanks anyway for making the fucking RSS, dude, you know? <laughs> and a lot of people have different objectives and different reasons why they even care that this stuff exists. Um, some people uh, see it purely for financial purposes and a means to an end to make some money. Some people see it as a, a better way to promote and market, and I, I know that. I do a marketing gig for as a day job. You know, I make a paycheck. Uh, um, rah, rah, come see this awesome, compelling content, right? I know how it works. Um, but there's really something to be said for looking beyond this immediate short-term future, and even beyond looking in terms of it as a, as a blog, and saying that all these puzzles of the publishing Tension, the conundrums have been solved. We now have a distribution tool that can indeed publish for free or cheap anywhere, anyhow, and the steps now to take that and use that as a collaborative tool to build something that can then come full circle and turn into an analog artifact that people can enjoy sitting by the fire, but you're building something online, and then the content and the delivery method have really been completely separated where they can be any way that you want. The trick is thinking of something that you, have to, that you have the ability to share that not everyone else does. Now, some people say that not everyone has that artistic spark, not everyone's a Van Gogh. Not e well, no one thought Van Gogh was either, right? You know? Not everyone's Henry David Thoreau. No one thought Henry David Thoreau was anything when Henry David Thoreau was writing. He died penniless at 37, then, 100 years later, changed the world. Civil disobedience, nonviolence. So it's, you don't, uh, I think there's something to be said for looking beyond the immediate benefits and really looking saying we have this opportunity with these tools, we have the ability to communicate at a high level, there's kind of rules and structure around editing and writing of what makes things good that you can learn about. So it's up to you, is that that bottom one? If you can't read it, it says something to express. Then I'm going to go to the next one, that's my chart.
uh, it used to be the end goal of making something was to find a publisher, find a record deal, get that contract. The big executive comes and tells you, your work is worthy. I'm going to sign you to a contract. We don't need them anymore. The gatekeepers have fallen. We can create and interact, or are falling anyway. Um, we can create and interact with our own community, and we can build a culture around our way of thinking. Whatever you're into, you can build things around that, and you can interact. And then you can end up right here in this awesome middle space. Is this a Venn diagram? Anyone know about Charlie? Hold on, we can add one. I got a Sharpie. She's wrong anyway, it is a Venn diagram. Okay, well, I always kept, ever since Rockstar Bootcamp, they told me to keep a Sharpie with me all the time, just in case I have to modify my Venn diagrams. This particular Venn diagram, uh, there's circle one that says awesomeness. Actually, awesome, because I ran out of space. I should draw in the circle uh, bigger. I also, for those of you who are really into, like, charts always seem to have some, like, little variable symbols, so I put an X on it. It doesn't actually mean anything. Uh, actually, the X stands for color one. This... This circle should be a different color than this circle, which is color Y. And uh, it represents audience, right? So you can be making awesome stuff and not have an audience, and you can be ha have an audience and not be making awesome stuff. Your goal is to end up here in the middle, uh, designated here with the, um, the kind of modified diagonal hash marks. In this area of the hash marks is where you want to hang. This is the area where your awesomeness and your audience comes together and you have breathed life into a project because you have put your soul into something. You've put the log back in the blog. The blog is to talk about this awesomeness that you're doing here. Perhaps you're making a, uh, a series of discourse about some topic that's incredibly compelling to you. Perhaps you're engaging like many of you do with various charitable organizations and not just helping for a one time but helping change the culture and helping educate other people about how to do the same thing. When you can think of projects in a longer term that might stretch over five years and separate them from the delivery method, you can really let yourself engage in some bigger things. Now, before I totally start segueing into party time, because um, anyone who knows me knows I don't want to uh, interrupt any beer drinking time, um, I'm going to show you just uh, two more last things that kind of just kind of show me trying to close the loop on some of these big projects. I've kind of talked about these large story arcs. Um, so I have all this poetry that I've been collecting. Anyone else like write little poetry and have notebooks in your uh, drawer and you're like, oh, one of these days I'm totally going to do something with these? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's what I did. I started taking all the notebooks and whenever I wasn't feeling particularly inspired to write per se, I would uh, put a little LP on on the record player, uh, smoke a little reefer, crack open a few beers, and I'd start uh, transcribing. And in doing the transcribing from original journals, I shut down my self-editing voice. This is an imperative step, because as soon as you start reading your stuff, that was awesome when you wrote it, you'll go, oh my god, douchebaggery, who said this? <laughs> and, I totally, and I know this because I totally do it, right? I mean, I record my little podcasts. If I listen back to them, I'm like, whoa, self-important douchebag. <laughs> who is it? So put on your editing uh, toque. I'm wearing my editing toque here. Um, and transcribe this. My easiest way to do it was just to uh, plop it into a WordPress.com blog because I'm not very uh, Cody or crafty on that kind of stuff. Um, so I have a writer's notebook blog. Um, it's public and people can see it, although I, I, I don't think people really do. Um, they're, they're welcome to. But I look at it more as a, as a workbook and where I can start to transcribe and assemble all these things. 
Then this summer what I went through uh, is I started breaking them up. How can I turn these into collections, right? How can I like put some sort of thematic thread? Are they, should I arrange them chronologically? Should I arrange them by theme? What should I do? So uh, one day I, uh, I got this printer that I, I, I was a tester of, right? I was a uh, print tester blog program, something. I wrote a review about it or something. But it was really handy uh, because I printed out the whole, uh, the whole blog. Isn't that funny? One of those people that printed a blog. I went down to Ambleside Beach, and I started dividing up all the poetry into four piles. And I started to notice some common threads. And I go, ooh, all right, I got something coming together here. And they span years and locations. But there's sort of some com common themes throughout them. So I started to assemble them. And I said, oh, great. Now I got four piles of shit that I'm not going to do anything with. So... <laughs> So then I futzed around and thought about it for a little bit, and I said, uh, you know what, I should just uh, make it into a little something that people can, because I, I, I didn't want to print out a bunch of things and sew them together, because like, I got other shit to do on my weekends, right? Um, and uh, so I, I said, I'll make a make-your-own book. I will take the poetry from the blog, put it in a document, make it into a PDF, and then uh, publish it as a PDF, and then let people print it out and, uh, and chop it up into whatever they want. So. Um, I have uh, one draft copy of it. Now, the one mistake I made is I didn't put little crop marks on it, but that's cool because it can be more like that Don Quixote. All the pages are all kind of like messed up and different sizes. It'll look more artsy-craftsy. And you get to do it on whatever paper you want because it's your dime. It's your printer. So um, in closing, I would like to offer you um, in a manner of breathing life into my own projects and uh, encouraging a culture around this stuff that I hope will last uh, beyond six months. Um, here it is. This is Depth Perception, a little PDF. If you want it, uh, DM me at Uncle Weed on Twitter, and you can, I'll send you a link, and you can get it, because like, uh, it'll take me like six months to actually post a link to it anywhere, so you better just send me a message, and I'll send you where it is. So um, with that, um, I could go on. There's more tricks in the, in the briefcase, but I think I should um, kill it there and um, say that um, many of you people in here that I know that you've inspired me tremendously over the years of the stuff that you're creating. And this message is kind of dedicated to the people that I know are awesomely smart and have this vast potential. And um, with humility and respect, I say continue kicking ass and do something awesome so in future generations, like Barack was saying the other day from the pulpit, we have carried this gift of freedom forward and passed it safely to other generations. We have to carry, we have this culture available to us. We're the curators of it, so let's do something awesome with it. That's what I got for you. Yeah, we need to collect Dave's stuff. <laughs> now we know what Dave's mom's felt like. What's that? Now we know what your mom felt like. You gotta pick up after yourself. Uh, I mean that lovingly. Dwayne, you want to come on up? With quick closing thoughts. Uh, we'll give you some details here on what's going to be happening this evening and different things. Okay, we got. Okay, so we got. Okay, so we have three copies of Morton's book. Uh, bound. It's an ancient binding, te it's an ancient binding technique. Um, you can put your own staple. 